history is, is filled with the futility of those who insist on seeking their own glory and power rather than submit to their creator, the only glorious, omnipotent God. It's mind-boggling, but it's true. And yet we see it, and we see it again and again, and, it, and we'll continue to see it until human history uh, culminates with Christ's return uh, and the, our entrance in the new heavens and new earth. And all sin is rebellion against God. And rebellion comes in different forms. It's, in, it's, it's from one in the, spe- the spectrum. It's from overt, rebellious, shaking your fist in God's face, rebellion, to passive disobedience. It's all rebellion against God. And all of us fall somewhere in that spectrum at some time. And apart from God's grace, we remain in that. Solomon states the fate of man's folly clearly and plainly in Proverbs 21, 30. He said, there's no wisdom, no understanding, and no counsel against God. But the insanity repeats itself over and over. We go to Genesis chapter 3. Adam heeded the voice of Satan through his deception in the garden over God's command and plunged all humanity and creation into a state of depravity and sin separated by God. Cain, God had prescribed an acceptable way to sacrifice to him. He thought his way was best, and he was cursed and a murderous, as a murderous outcast. God had prescribed a path of righteousness to walk with him in the days of Noah. Noah was obedient, but the rest of humanity, except for Noah and his sons, his wife and his sons and their wives, rebelled against God and were destroyed by the worldwide flood in Genesis 6. Abraham chose to believe and follow God. Whereas Lot chose to dwell in the midst of wickedness and his wife died and his offspring was cursed. Genesis 19. With Jacob and Esau, you had Jacob who chose the spiritual blessing through the covenant that God had given through his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac. And Esau thought so little of God's promises that he sold his birthright for a bowl of soup and forfeited forever and was excluded from God's covenant. And to go back in even further, you read in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel 28, Satan himself, Lucifer, the anointed cherub, in his rebellion of God, forfeits his place, is cast out of heaven and carries a third of the angels with him and opposes God to this day and is damned for eternity. And Satan still opposes God, and throughout history he has incited kings and rulers, men of power, um, uh, to oppose God and his people. Um, Carlton Brown and I were talking uh, before the service. One thing, whether it be the history of, of, of the church or, or the history of the world, we have to remember that history doesn't happen as we study it. It happens as we live it. 
and these rulers who seem so powerful, who seem, and from a worldly standpoint, have so much influence and powers are simply pawns in God's eternal plan. The first of these we meet is Pharaoh of Egypt. He makes this bold statement in Exodus 5-2 when confronted by Moses and Aaron to let his people go, God's people go. He says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and besides, I will not let Israel go. His rebellion cost him his land. It cost him his economy, it cost him his son, it cost him his army, it cost him his life. And as you proceed through the leadership of Moses and Joshua, you'll read, and we're not going to go through all these, uh, the accounts of 31 rulers who fought against God and his people and were defeated. And when you come to First and Second Kings, in First and Second Chronicles, when Israel's divided by the uh, after the reign of Solomon, you see a pattern of rebellion against God continuing. Now, this is among His chosen nation. First of all, the Northern Kingdom, which consisted of the uh, ten tribes of Israel, um, uh, every king beginning with Jeroboam was evil. There wasn't one righteous one in the bunch. And um, this ultimately led to them being taken in captivity by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. And the southern kingdom, which consisted of Judah and Benjamin, had a few good kings, but, but most were evil. But one righteous king was Hezekiah. And if you, if you want to turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings 19... I want to read a few verses where Hezekiah is being threatened by Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. Now, I'm going to start reading verses 8 through 19. Y'all just bear with me because I want you to see how blatantly rebellious mankind can be and how severely God deals with that rebellion. Starting in verse 8 of chapter 19, 2 Kings, then Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. And when he heard them say uh, concerning Tirkahah, the king of Cush, behold, he was coming out to fight against you, he sent messengers again to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you, saying, Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, destroying them completely. So will you be spared? Did the gods of those nations nations which my fathers destroyed deliver them, even Gozen and Haran and Respeth? And the sons of Eden, who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, and Hena, and Iva? Then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it, and he went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. 
Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who are enthroned above the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and listen to the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated the nations and their land and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone, so they have destroyed them. Now, O Lord, our God, I pray, deliver us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. And God answers through the prophet Isaiah. And if you go down to verse 25, this is God speaking. Have you not heard? Long ago, I did it. From ancient times, I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass, that you should turn fortified cities into ruinous heaps. Therefore, their inhabitants were short of strength, and they were dismayed and put to shame. They were as the vegetation of the field and as the green herb, as grass on the housetops is scorched before it is grown up. But I know you're sitting down, I know you're going out, and you're coming in, and you're raging against me. Because of your raging against me, and because your arrogance has come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back by the way which you came. Then in verse 32, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, concerning the king of Assyria, he will not come to this city or shoot an arrow there. He will not come before it with a shield or throw up a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, by the same he will return, and he will not come to this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. So Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And it came about as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his God, that Adramalek and Sherzar killed him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, became king in his place. Sennacherib shook his hand in the face of God, uh, one angel destroyed 185 of his soldiers and he went back the way he came. All rebellion against God is futile. And as we come to the New Testament, the opposition continues. I think sometimes we forget when we're reading in the Old Testament about God's judgments and God's promises that this is a Trinitarian God making those promises. And 
and Christ, who we, we refer to as the second person of the Trinity, is involved in that judgment and those promises. So as God, he will not be thwarted either. And we saw that at his birth when Herod attempts to kill him. God preserves him, the child, by sending him to Egypt. When Jesus' hometown attempted to kill him, he passed right through them. And Jesus answered Pilate in John 19, verses 10 through 11, that um, the only authority he had was authority that had been given to him from above. And that no one had the authority to take his life, that he laid it down freely. Christ will build his church. So in Acts, we have seen the opposition to God continue, and it continues to this day. And we, we would be wise to follow the wise counsel of Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5, verses uh, 35 through 39. I know we went through this, but listen to these words again. And it said, But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. This is after Peter and John had, had been arrested. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a group of about 400 men joined with him, but he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found fighting against God. So as we come to... Acts chapter 12, verses 20 through 25. As Corey explained last week, Herod here is Herod Agrippa I. And he was in his tent on destroying the church. He had killed James, um, the apostle, the brother of John, with a sword. And he had imprisoned Peter because it curried favor with the Jews. And... Um, and there was two things that Rome would not tolerate. And Herod was, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. He was put in place by Rome. Two things the Romans would not tolerate, not paying your taxes and insurrection. The lands that they conquered, you could worship the way you wanted to, just pay your taxes and don't, don't cause a ruckus to put it in the old hatchy vernacular. And... So, um, uh, but just a little bit, just a little bit about Agrippa. Um, he was the grandson of Herod the Great. Um, his father was murdered by his grandfather when he was four years old for treason. He was strangled. But Herod the Great being the terrible father, but obviously caring grandfather that he was, sent him to Rome, where he gained, he was educated by Tiberius, who would later become emperor. And 
when you when I when I was studying this, I tried to I tried to put myself in the place of Herod. Herod, the he went through some things. He, he got in tremendous debt in Rome, and uh, uh, his uncle actually bought him out of it. But he made relationships that were very beneficial to him. Uh, he made friends with uh, Caligula, which may uh, be a name familiar uh, to you. He was an insane emperor. But at the death of Tiberius, when Caligula became uh, emperor, he installed his friend, Herod Agrippa, to um, uh, power in the region that basically his grandfather had ruled in, even really in the greater sc uh, scope when, because uh, he had also made friends with Claudius, who was the emperor after, after Caligula was assassinated and was even given more power. So Herod Agrippa at this time was one of the most powerful kings in the East. And, um, um, and so, <clears throat> so we come... To verse 20. And um, now remember in verse 19, um, you know, Peter has escaped. Herod searched for uh, Peter and didn't find him. And he, uh, uh, the soldiers that were guarding Peter, Peter were executed. Um, that was common. If, if, a, if a prisoner escaped on your watch, you had to bear that, that sentence. And remember, he was preparing to put Peter to death. He was waiting until after the pass is over because that way it wouldn't be. Um, uh, um, Agrippa seems to be one who wants to stand out, who wants to uh, wants anything he does to not be uh, uh, shadowed by anything else. But, of course, we know... Um, um, Peter is um, released from prison by an angel, and um, it said that um, in verse 17, it says, um, after Peter says, report these things to James and the brethren, it said, then he left and went to another place. So Herod then goes, after he puts the soldiers to death, he goes to Caesarea, which was built by his grandfather, Herod the Great, kind of as a vacation spot on the coast and everything. And uh, he may be there sulking, kind of trying to figure out, or, uh, you know, maybe because he kind of had egg on his face with Peter being, uh, you know, uh, getting out of prison and him not being able to find him. Kind of, if I'm, if I'm not there, I don't have to deal with it. But when we come to verse 20, it says, Now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Now, why he was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, it's not particularly clear. But for whatever reason it was, it was serious enough that these two Phoenician cities in, in Tyre and Sidon, they were um, uh, kind of northwest, about 40 miles from Galilee. Um, uh, they were two of the main cities of, of the, the area known as Phoenicia. Uh, but they sent representatives to Caesarea to make peace with Herod because Food was being withheld, and the area was in the midst of a famine. If you go back to uh, Acts 11, 27 through 28, Agabus had came from Jerusalem and said that there would be a famine in all the world in the time of Claudius. Well, Claudius is the emperor now. So uh, there's a famine throughout the land. Phoenicia, uh, Tyre and Sidon are dependent on Galilee for, for a lot of their food. 
And it may be that that's where Peter went, and they had harbored him, and that may be why Herod was angry with them. We just really don't know. But uh, they were in dire straits enough that they sent a delegation to meet with, uh, or to try to meet with Herod. And it says that they um, they won over uh, Blastus, the king's chamberlain, and our treasurer. And they probably did this through bribery. Probably said, hey, you know, we'll give you this money. You get us an audience. You, you smooth this over with Herod. Uh, you know, whatever we have to do, whatever we have to pay him, you know, whatever we have to, ever how we have to honor him, we just, we just need this done. And so, uh, Blastus, through his relationship, through Herod as his trusted advisor, kind of pleaded the case of the Phoenicians and persuaded Herod and I believe to lift sanctions and grant them, uh, grant the delegation and an audience in order to officially render his decision. And, I, and I'll show you in the next few verses why I believe this. And um, so if in, in chapter 21, it says, On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. Now, <clears throat> the appointed day... Some, some commentators said they thought this was a feast day to Claudius could be in. I, I, you know, I, I don't really know. Um, uh, but I really believe, and that may be the case, but I believe primarily it was a day and it was calculated that Herod sought to glorify himself to show that he had the power of life and death over these people. Because it said he took his seat on the rostrum the rostrum, that literally means judgment seat. So this is, this is a time where he's going to make an official pronouncement on his decision regarding the, uh, the people of Tyre and Sidon. And I, th- I think he wanted to show that he had absolute rule and he was in absolute control over their lives. And their existence was conditional, conditional upon his bidding. Said he entered in his royal apparel. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that his apparel was made of silver in order to reflect the natural light and make his presence as glorious as, as it could be. And when he begins, his, his pronouncement must have been positive due to the response of the people. At the end of 21, it says, and he began delivering an address to them. And in verse 22, listen to the people's response. The people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. And the language here is they just kept repeating it. They just kept repeating it. Now, their response may have been false adulation for a tyrannical ruler, I don't know, or these were pagans. <laughs> they, you know, emperor worship was, was very common. So, you know, but regardless, Herod received it as worship. Now, we see instances as we go uh, through Acts and really as Paul starts coming to the forefront from from really from Chapter 13 on, you know, Paul dominates the, the book of Acts where there were times they entered c- cities and they did a, a miracle and they, and they were 
the people were wanting to worship them, and and Paul and uh, those with him tore their clothes and didn't receive. You know, we're just men. Men are not to be worshipped, only God. But he received worship, and in doing so, placed himself in opposition of the true and living God, and he suffers the same fate as all those who oppose God. Verse 23, and immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory. Y'all want to know how fast angels travel? Immediately, pretty fast. Now, why was Herod stricken? God will not share his glory. Herod was like those Paul describes in Romans 1, verses 23 through 23. They do not honor God as God or give thanks. They are futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts are darkened. And they profess wisdom but are fools. So in the end, Herod was shown to be nothing but a fool among a long line of fools that have met and will meet their doom at the hand of the Holy God. Now, I can't be dogmatic, but it seems that God sent an angel to strike Herod with some kind of deadly parasite. Josephus, once again, says that um, Herod Agrippa, Agrippa was in agonizing, torturous pain for five days, and then he died, literally eaten alive from the inside. I wonder what his thoughts were those five days. You think he was pontificating about his glory and his power? No, just like Sennacherib, he came and, and Pharaoh, and the long list that you can look through history. He realized that he had been stricken by a holy God. And then there's an interesting change in verse 24. It says, but the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but what? My words will never pass away. God's word, God's plan will not be thwarted. By man or the demons of hell or Satan himself. It will continue and its purposes will be fulfilled. And then verse 25, and it says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission. And they had returned back to Antioch, taking along with them John, who was called Mark. 
So God renders judgment on evildoers and fulfills his purpose with his own omnipotent power. What a mighty God we serve. Now, what, what does that mean for us today? Um, we still see those who oppose God. Uh, you look at recent history of Hitler, who opposed God that he said there had to be a final answer apart from God. I remember hearing about Joseph Stalin, who is reported murdered more people than, than Hitler. I remember uh, <clears throat> hearing a story um, Ravi Zacharias told about Stalin's daughter coming and talking to him and said one thing she never understood about her father said as he was lying on his deathbed barely breathing he sat up clenched his fist to the heavens and then fell backwards dead with his last breath he opposed God and died to face eternal hell. Remember, rebellion takes takes different forms. Overt rebellion, men putting themselves in the place of God, or passive disobedience. We we see the entire spectrum. We see in the Sermon on the Mount, we see those who uh, seem to live godly lives, but they come to the Lord and they say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? And he says, what? Depart from me. I never knew you. You're a rebel. I plead with you. If you're in rebellion against God, if you're depending on your own power to do good, to live a moral life based on your own power, and don't give the glory to God, don't submit to Him, don't live a life pleasing to Him through His power, not your own. You'll go the way of all rebels. I just plead with you today. Come to Christ. He is the life. He's the way. He's the truth. Let's pray. Father, we just lift you up. And thank you for your word. And Father, I just pray that everyone here will search their hearts to be secure, to get comfort from you where only true comfort can come from, that they are in you and you are living through them. And Father, if 
those who are in rebellion against you, I pray that you will break them and bring them to yourself. Regenerate them. Strengthen, give them faith. Strengthen their faith. And by your grace, they live a life that glorifies you and you alone. And Father, let us never lose sight that we serve you. We do the bidding of a holy God. That you guide our steps. You number our days. You empower us to live for you. And you are the only one to receive glory. For in Christ's name we pray. Amen.